imagine that you just got hired for the dream job, but here's the conditions for the first year, everything that you do. I mean, every minute of the day is being evaluated. Every time you're there, you're being uh, evaluated, I guess is a good word to put it, rated on your, your actions, whether you clean the bathroom right, do you take the trash out when you're supposed to? How's your uniform look? How do you respond to clients when we're going on calls? How's your attitude? All of that is judged for that first year. Can you picture in your mind the stress and the anxiety of knowing for an entire year, everything that you do is being evaluated? That's what the life of a firefighter is like. And you're going to hear more about that during this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life. You're listening to Unbeatable with Jeff Struker. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Unbeatable. I'm Jeff Struker. This podcast is stories of people who have faced amazing difficulties. And when life got tough and they got knocked down a little bit, they didn't let it beat them. They got up and dusted themselves off and got right back in there. I'm so excited to introduce my guest to you today. He and I have gone back, we go back together many years, um, probably almost 25, 30 years. This is a guy that I respected while we were in the army together and have stayed in touch with and respect greatly after he got out of the army. My guest is my friend, Mark Nygaard. Mark, thank you so much for joining us for this episode today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I appreciate it. Yeah, so we're going to talk a little bit about what you're doing now, um, and we'll get to that in a second. But in order to help people understand how you ended up as a lieutenant in a fire department in one of America's major metropolitan areas, let's talk about what led you to join the fire department. Um, Before we do that, explain a little bit about your time in the Army and then the transition from the Army to Tacoma Fire. Uh, well, I spent 10 years, 10 and a half years in the Army. Eight and a half of those were in the Ranger Battalion, 2nd Ranger Battalion up here at Fort Lewis or JBLN now. Uh, the reason I got out is because they told me I had to leave the Ranger Battalion and I couldn't <laughs> come back to the regiment because I'd been there too long. So I got out of the Army. Uh, when I got out, I transitioned. It was a rougher. Everybody thinks getting out of the Army is great, but it's you wake up one morning, you don't have to go to PT, you don't have people yelling at you, you don't have anybody feeding you, telling you what to do, you have to do all that yourself. So I uh, worked a couple jobs for about two and a half years, three years before I got hired on to the fire department. Yeah. I tested right when I was getting out of the army for two different fire departments. Uh, one test I didn't pass and the other test with Tacoma I did. It took them about two and a half years to call me back for me to get an interview. So about 1,500 people tested the year I tested. Tests last two to three years, and they hired about 80, I think. Wow. If that. You waited two and a half years to get a call back from the fire department. Correct. I worked at a dairy. I worked at a car detailing company, did a little bit of construction stuff on the side, just trying to, figure something out until something happens. Yeah. That's incredible. I didn't realize that. Um, 
And being selected 80 out of 1,500 is no joke, especially if those 1,500 that tested were pretty strong, pretty smart guys and gals anyway. Is that right? Yeah, there's a people fly all over the country testing for different fire departments. So they're very good, very knowledgeable. They know how to fight fires. They know what's required. Some of them are paramedics. Some of them are EMTs. I was just a guy getting out of the Army thinking, hey, great. Let me uh, try to be a firefighter. That yeah. sounds cool. Hey, I totally get where you're coming from, by the way. You know, spending all that time in the Army, when somebody tells you how to dress in the morning, it becomes a major crisis to figure out what am I going to wear tomorrow after you get out of the Army, right? Well, yeah. What am I going to do with myself? Uh, where am I going to go? Yeah. What time do I have to get up? Yeah. So uh, why not join the fire department where they tell you how to dress, right? Because that's just one less thing that I have to think about tomorrow morning. Well, that and uh, the uh, schedule was pretty appealing. Mm-hmm. Uh, camaraderie I liked and, and like today. Uh, so things like that. Yeah. Well, so you just started to answer my first question. My first real question for us is why the fire department in general? Why Tacoma Fire? Are you from the Pacific Northwest? Uh, no, my dad was a pastor and we moved around a lot when I was a kid. Lived in Washington for 12 years, but I was born in Illinois and I graduated high school in Illinois. But I only lived in Illinois for five years, mm-hmm. so figure that one out. Yeah. Uh, but... I was here at JBLM with the Ranger time, and I got out here, and I just stayed. I tested with uh, West Pierce Fire, and uh, I just got back from Thailand before that test, so I didn't uh, study very much and didn't pass. And then I tested for Tacoma Fire. So those are the only two fire departments that I tested for. Yeah. So the reason I chose Tacoma Fire is because they hired me pretty much. All right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so for the listeners, uh, Mark was stationed in this elite special operations unit up at this joint base. It's now called Lewis McCord. Used to be an Army base and an Air Force base right next to each other. They just melded into one, and they just call it now Joint Base Lewis McCord. So he just left there right outside of Tacoma and uh, tested for the fire department, waited about two and a half years. When you get the call and they accepted you. Tell us the process. What does it look like to become a firefighter at Tacoma Fire? Well, uh, the call is just a call. Mm-hmm. I also had to go down and do a physical abilities test and do a uh, oral interview. So Here. tell us about the physical abilities test. What are they testing you for? Well, back then it was a different type of physical abilities test than what they do now. Now they're doing a CPAT, which is standardized testing for fire all across the country. So if you want information on that, you can look up CPAT fire testing. Uh, and that will give you the, what type of uh, testing that is. Back mm-hmm. then it was, you had to start a chainsaw and carry a fan up four flights of stairs and hanging on a window and raise an extinguisher out of a window up, up the fourth flight, bring it in, raise the ladder, do some chin ups uh, stuff like that. Luckily, I was in still in pretty good shape because I just got out of the Army a couple of years prior to that. Uh, then you had to go through an oral interview. And so they graded you on your oral interview, graded you on your CPAT, I mean, on your uh, physical abilities test. And then they took your written test and they combined it all into one score. And then you were ranked based on those scores. Now, people that were military had uh, veterans preference. Mm-hmm. 
Unfortunately, I didn't because I tested when I was active duty, so I didn't have a DD-214 in my hand when I applied for Tacoma Fire Department. Uh-huh. So I didn't get a 10% bump in my scores, unfortunately. Still worked out. So you had to earn it the hard way is what you're saying. I guess so. Luckily, I tested high enough, and uh, I hired two classes at that time from the list that I was on class before mine and then the class I was on. Our class had 25 people and it started and uh, 20 finished the uh, probationary period. Yeah, would you tell us about that probationary period? What was the class like? What was that probationary period like? Cause that's right. really so, forging you into a firefighter, right? Right, so what we did is we did a couple weeks of fire training, which was how to, how to uh, put your bunkers on, how to get your, uh, equipment ready, how to move hose line upstairs, how to move hose line with water, how to use ladders, what type of equipment we use, what type of flow tests we're doing. And then we broke into four weeks of EMT course. And that's Mm -hmm. a standard EMT course. Uh, Usually it's a lot longer than four weeks, but we only had four weeks. That was a pass or fail. If you failed, you were gone. Uh, then we went back to like six more weeks of firefighter training. Once all that's done, you get put out in the field and you're assigned to a shift. In Tacoma, we have four shifts. We do a modified Detroit schedule. So I work a 24-hour shift. I'm off two days. Then I work a 24-hour shift. I'm off four days. Mm-hmm. And then eight times a year, I have to work one extra shift called a debit day. A debit day. Right. All so, right. uh, just got to plug that in and work those extra shifts eight times a year. Yeah. Uh, so basically we work eight shifts a month, but it's a 24 hour shift. We stay at the station the whole time, sleep there, eat there, work out there and go on calls. Uh, when I first got hired, they said engine 10 and engine one are the fastest or the most busiest in the nation or one in the nation is what they said. I don't know how true that was, but, they're doing 3,000 calls a year. Unbelievable. Goodness. Those two stations are doing 3,000 calls a year. Well, today, Engine 10, Engine 1, Engine 11 do 4,000 calls a year. And we have uh, 17 engine companies, and uh-huh. 10 of them are doing at least 3,000 calls a year today. Wow. So our call volume has increased that much. Yeah. Uh, sorry, going off on a tangent there. But uh, – Going back to the starting, you become a probationary for a year. So data hire, my data hire is March 1st. Uh, so on March 1st, I was hired in 1999. So March 1st, 2000, I was done with probation. But to do that, I had to go through the training academy. Mm-hmm. When you're called a recruit then, then you go out in the field and they call you probationary. You get assigned to a company and you have tasks you have to do. You have to uh, you get graded every pay, I mean, every shift. And then we had to go in and do uh, different written tests, different uh, skills, EMS skills. And we were graded on all those skills for a year, being graded every step of the way. And then uh, once probationary is done, you're a firefighter. Yeah. Yeah. So for the listener, I just want to make sure that you're hearing the steps that it takes to be able to do this because we ask a lot of our first responders and man, they get some incredible scrutiny, some, some great supervision, but they're, uh, you know, constantly supervised, constantly evaluated. 
it sounds like for more than a year, every single time you were at work for more than a year. Is that right? Uh, for about a year. Yep. Every time you're there, you're being uh, evaluated, yeah. I guess is a good word to put it. You're graded on your, your actions, whether you clean the bathroom right, do you take the trash out when you're supposed to, uh, how's your uniform look, how do you respond to clients when we're going on calls, how's your attitude, all of that is judged for that first year. Yeah, for you guys and gals out there that are thinking about uh, applying to a, a local fire department, I just want you to hear from somebody who's a veteran. Um, this is what it looks like. But for those of you who are not even considering it, I also want you to have this healthy respect for first responders. In fact, I wore my first responder shirt today um, just as a way of trying to honor first responders from police, EMS, but especially fire uh, firefighters all over our country. Um, and I'll just say it to the listening audience. I've been all over the world. I've had a chance to see the way that the rest of the world's EMS and their um, emergency services work. And no one in the world's emergency services work as well and as hard as Americans does. Um, but you can tell it's because there's a lot of work and a lot of talent in our EMS. Um, Mark, you're now a lieutenant with the fire department. You've been with them for more than 20 years, so you know what it takes to be successful. Let's say that there's somebody out there who's 19 years old and they're thinking about going to college, not sure if I want to do that, or if I want to go to the fire department, or if I want to do something different. What skills does it take to be successful as a firefighter? Well, my first thought is you have to be breathing. Uh, <laughs> but you uh, have to have a good attitude. Sometimes uh, a younger person will get hired and not realize how good of a job they've got. And so five years, they get hired, they're 20. Five years later, they said, this job sucks. I'm like, well, go dig a ditch for a living and see how bad that is. Yeah. You have an amazing job. So have a good attitude of, okay, I'm young, and I need to listen to the people that have done this before me. Just like in the military, you want to listen to your mm -hmm. squad leader, listen to your platoon sergeant, learn from those people. Learn from the firefighters. There's good firefighters and bad firefighters. Pick the good ones out, get in their back pocket, and uh, learn. We've got a guy that's been on for 40 years. I tell everybody, wow. get in that guy's back pocket because he knows firefighting. Yeah. EMS, he's, he knows everything about fires. That's who you want to learn from because eventually those people retire, and you don't have that information anymore. Yeah. Well, uh, go ahead. What other skills? The other skill is you want to be in pretty good shape. There are some pretty large firefighters that aren't in good shape, but they didn't start off that way. Uh, and so just think about if I have to pull somebody out of a fire or somebody fell through the floor, I need to pull them up through the floor. Can I do that? Uh, and then just like I say, and have a good attitude. Yeah. It's going to be rough at times, and but it's going to be a lot of fun at other times. So make sure you, you're ready for the challenge. Yeah. Thanks for the advice. So if you're sitting out there and you're thinking, do I have what it takes? At least now you have something that you can compare yourself against. Um, I have this little segment that I like to do, Mark. I call it the high five. This is my way of kind of giving you a virtual high five here. But um, it's a question that I'm looking for, you know, three to five answers. And 
because you've been in Tacoma Fire for so long, you probably have a couple of stories to tell. I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to give you some answers to the same question that I'm going to ask you in just a second, Mark, but um, you may not know this. I spent uh, some time um, going through EMS training and as a um, immersed or doing an EM, uh, some paramedic stuff in the military and had a chance to work in a Tacoma emergency room during that training and saw some outrageous stuff in there, as I'm sure you have. So I was thinking today, um, some of the most outrageous 911 calls, right? We have the chance to pick up the phone, no matter where you are in America, dial these three numbers, and all of America's emergency services will drop what they're doing to get to you. It's, uh, it's, it's really unprecedented. Before anybody else in the world had it, um, our 911 service was the envy of the rest of the world. But sometimes people take advantage of that. So I'm thinking about the five most outrageous 911 calls that I can imagine or that I can, you know, that, I, that I've heard of, as well as maybe even seen myself. And Mark, I want you to think about the answer to this one in just a second, but I'm going to give my high five, my top five outrageous 911 calls. Um, somebody dialed 911 because they had a air quotes emergency and I'm going to, you know, kind of give uh, just as a way of laughing uh, on your drive home, listening to this podcast, why people, the outrageous reasons why people called 911. So here's my list. And then Mark, you think about it and you give us your list. All right. Okay. So true story. All of these are true events. People really called 911 for this. There was a very wealthy surgeon's son who was drunk after a party and dialed 911 because he didn't want to get a drunk driving uh, arrest. He needed a ride home. And of course, when the 911 dispatcher asked the question, what's your emergency, when he described it as, I'm drunk and I need a ride home, the 911 dispatcher explained to them, yeah, that's not really an emergency until this very spoiled, entitled surgeon's son declared, well, my daddy pays more money in taxes than everybody else, so I figure you should be able to spend money to pick me up and to drive me home from this party drunk. That was the reason why he called 911. Or check this out, true story. A guy calls 911 because he lives in an apartment managed by a landlord and the microwave for the apartment is missing. Now get this, it's not his microwave, it belongs to the apartment and it belongs to the landlord. And the landlord came back into the apartment and took the microwave, which prompted this resident to call 911 and tell the 911 dispatcher that his house has no microwave. The police showed up, tried to figure out exactly what was going on when they realized that he called 911 just because the microwave is missing, they were about to cite him, as you can well imagine, Mark. And he said, well, I called 911 because it really is an emergency. I'm hungry and I need a microwave to prepare my food with. So that's why I called 911. Or how about the lady who called 911 on her phone, you know, on an iPhone, when you try to dial a couple of times and you can't get a dial, you can, it brings up this 911 prompt. 
Um, and she used her iPhone, the 911 prompt on her iPhone, because she couldn't remember her phone's passcode. And of course, called the 911 dispatcher because she needed help unlocking her phone. Love this story. There was a lady who called 911 because she has a little uh, stream rolling through her backyard. It's winter time. There were some deer in the backyard munching on the dried leaves and trying to find something to eat when they got spooked. And they jumped into the stream and swam across the stream and ran up the hill on the other side. Well, she calls 911 because she's convinced that the deer are cold and they need somebody to warm them up now that they've jumped into that cold water behind her house. But the, the most, I think the most outrageous uh, call I've ever heard for a 911 dispatcher is a lady, and you got to give this lady credit, a mom who has a child that has a peanut allergy. And of course, anybody who has a peanut allergy knows how serious, actually how deadly that is. But a mom called 911 because she just got a package in the mail. The package came from Amazon. And instead of having bubble wrap, it had packing peanuts. And she was sure that this was going to cause a medical emergency for her child. The packing, the styrofoam packing peanuts in the Amazon box. That's my high five most outrageous calls to 911. How about you, Mark? You've heard a couple of these outrageous calls. You've probably been on an outrageous call or two. So tell me a couple of examples of this. Uh, let's see. First one I can think of is a guy called 911 because his keys were locked in his car. Years ago, we used to go to lockouts and unlock the car. The ladder company went. There was no one around. They're like, all right, and they left. Guy calls back, and they said, we had somebody there. Where are you at? Well, I'm in a movie. Go back. Come back in two hours. <laughs> no, no, we're not going to come back in two hours. Yeah, Can you uh, come back? Don't ruin the end of the movie. Come back exactly. when the movie's over. I, I'm watching the movie. Wait for me to finish. Yeah. That, that's not an emergency. Uh, we had a lady call for a medical emergency. We got there. went inside. What's going on? Well, I'm out of suppositories. Awesome. Pick, pick some up. Perfect. Um, I got a call one time uh, for emergency. Went there, and the neighbor's like, there's a bird stuck in this house. The bird is inside the house. Yes. Uh, apparently, the people were gone, and the somehow a bird got in, and the neighbors were worried that a bird was stuck in a house. Wow. And uh, I'm like, yeah, that's terrible. Uh <laughs> Of course, we've had cats and trees. I haven't had that yeah. in a long time. I'm not on a ladder company anymore. Uh, probably one of the weirdest calls I've had was a dog stuck in grave. In a grave? And so we, we go to the graveyard. We're like, hey, what's going on? And these two ladies were there. They said we were prepping the grave the night before. They had dug the grave and put plywood over it. Plywood slipped, and the dog fell inside the grave. And I thought, oh, and I was a low person on totem pulse. They're like, hey, you're going in the hole. And so I thought, oh, here's going to be a Rottweiler foaming yeah. at the mouth. Something's going to be ugly. I'm going to get bit. Uh, so they just lowered me in the hole, and it was a little lap dog, basically. I looked it up. Today, since that's uh, over four feet tall, that would you have to call it a tech rescue because that's a collapse zone. 
Really? The fact that we didn't have that. So yeah. they just threw me in a hole and then picked me up and had me reach out. So that's probably my five. All right. Some of my five weirdest yeah. calls. Hey, for all of you who are out there listening right now, if you live in the United States, you have this unprecedented emergency services at your disposal by dialing three simple numbers on your phone. Please don't call because of packing peanuts or because your keys are in your car, but you need to watch the rest of the movie. Please just wait until it's really an emergency. Don't send people out there for something like packing styrofoam packing peanuts or your dog fell into a empty grave. Uh, let's get back to the uh, to the interview, though, Mark. I, I want us to get serious for a little bit because you're in a really serious line of work. So I want you to talk about the physical and the mental stress of being a firefighter. What you've done this for decades. Tell me, tell describe to people that haven't done this line of work the stress that it can place on you physically, having to be. Um, fit enough that you can handle all of the gear and the, you know, the, uh, uh, in a burning building, but also talk about the mental stress of the job, will you? Uh, luckily God provided me with a pretty good, uh, physique so I can handle physical tasks pretty well. I don't have to work super hard at it. Uh, so for me, the physical portion isn't overwhelming. Uh, I'm, way out of shape compared to what I used to be, obviously. Uh, but there are some people that struggle with that. Um, and through the years, the fire service has been pushing, hey, we need to keep people in shape. So they're buying equipment at stations, uh, suggesting people work out, providing uh, uh, instruction on how to properly work out. Um, and it is physical at times. Other times it's not, but you got to carry a lot of equipment. Yeah. You got your bunkers, which is your pants, your coat, your helmet, a hood, your gloves. So you're sweating a lot. You're in a fire, so it's extremely hot. Mm -hmm. And you got a back uh, SCBA or self-contained breathing apparatus on your back. You're breathing out the air from that. Uh, and right now we're carrying 45-minute bottles, which means their bottles are supposed to last 45 minutes. They usually last about 30. But if you're out of shape, nervous, breathing real hard, they'll last maybe 16 minutes. Yeah. Uh, so the way the rule is, it's not how it used to be, but now you're supposed to use less than half a bottle going in. When you get to half a bottle, you go out. It used to be when your bell started ringing, which you had 10% left, you go out. Uh, but now they're finding, hey, if you're in a really big building, you don't have enough oxygen yeah. or enough air to get out. So you got to be smarter. Another big push in the fire service they're finding is mental health. Uh, there's been a problem, and it wasn't talked about for years, a major problem of uh, people killing themselves, mm -hmm. uh, PTSD, uh, and you always think of PTSD, military people, you know, and a lot of those people that I noticed when I was in the Army that had that type of issue had problems before they got in the Army. And then the military just made those problems bigger. Uh, <clears throat> but they still needed help, and a lot of them didn't get yeah. it. In the fire service, it's kind of like that way, too. You see a lot of nasty things on all across the country, I'm sure. In Tacoma, we, see, we have all kinds of things, shootings, stabbings, uh, medical emergencies, car wrecks, fires. It's just, you name it, we've had it. 
but uh, that takes a toll after a while, unless you take care of yourself. You got to take care of yourself mentally. I was talking to a probationer the other day. I said our goal when I got on the job, the goal was, hey, we're gonna. Our goal is to get home safely after the shift. That's our goal yeah. to have a good shift to get home safely. I said the goal now needs to be I'm gonna have a good retirement to where I'm living 20, 30 years after I retire. That's a good retirement. Yeah. Part of that is getting home safely. And also taking care of yourself mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically. You can't be going home, man, that call sucked, and just start drinking yeah. Yeah. drinking it away because it, it doesn't work. If you're doing CPR on a baby or whatever, it it's horrible, but you have to have an outlet to take care of that yeah. stress so it doesn't one day uncork. Luckily, now the fire service is realizing that, and there's more steps going towards that. I'm part of the uh, peer support team. We, when we started, we were a critical incident stress management team. When we first started, people are like, that's that's voodoo stuff. Uh, you can't do that. That hurts more people than it helps. It's horrible. There's scientific proof says that sucks. Uh, and now it's mandatory you go to a debriefer to defusing. Yeah. So so the the attitude is shifted. You got to take care of yourself. Physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. And the goal should be I want to have a good retirement. Yeah. Part of that is getting home every night right. after or every day after shift healthy. Yeah. I was on a call the other day and a guy punched me in the throat. Uh, it wasn't a bad punch, but uh, it, it, you just got to record. It's just part of it, got to be yeah. keep safe. And yeah. my initial thought was all right, game on, here we go. But luckily, my driver, she said, hey, this is an emergency situation. We need to leave, which snapped me back into, uh -huh. hey, there's more people besides me. Uh, we're out. Yeah. We got in the engine. The guy picked up a rock about the size of fist, threw it right at the engine. He was, wow. you know, on some drugs or yeah. something. Threw a couple other rocks at it. We drove away. But my ranger thought was, okay, let's go. Yeah. Game on, buddy. Here we yeah. go. Rock on. That wasn't the right attitude. Yeah. Luckily, I had a driver there that, that said, hey, dork, get in the rig. We're out of here. Uh, who knows? He could have had a knife on him. He yeah. could have had a gun on him. Yeah. He was stoned. He couldn't hardly – he was just whacked out because he had taken drugs. Mm -hmm. So, And the cops eventually arrested him but uh, before he could hurt anybody else. Yeah. Well, so you just described the amount of – physical uh, strain that this puts on you. How much do you think that the gear, the average gear weighs on a firefighter when they respond to a, a fire? Uh, Ballpark. 45 pounds, maybe. Uh -huh. I don't know. Okay. So I want you, if you're listening out there and you have no experience with the fire department, I want you to think about getting up and going and putting on 45 pounds worth of gear, but your uh, amount of, Oxygen is severely limited um, in a fire and you're in the middle of this intense um, inferno and you have to be able to handle yourself physically. But as Mark just described, I also want you to think about the mental stress of, listen to his words, just trying to get through a shift alive, a shift being 24 hours. Imagine the mental stress that accumulates after day after day of going to work and thinking, I hope I make it home alive. So Mark, um, I want you to talk about um, the stress that being 
uh, work, uh, that kind of difficult work environment, but also a work environment where you don't really control your schedule. So you don't decide when you're at work and when you're not, which means lots of nights away from home. Talk about the stress that this can put on a marriage relationship and on families. Uh, it takes a while to get used to, uh, cause you're gone a lot of nights, but you're also home a lot of nights. Mm-hmm. When, when my son was young, he said, daddy, when are you going to get a real job? When you, when you work every day, I'm like, you don't want me to have a real job. Cause the last time I did that, I came in to your sister and said, Hey, have a great day. Love you. Went to work. And then she came in and kissed me in the morning and said, I'm yeah. going to school. Love you. And that was the only time we talked because I was doing a real job. Uh, but there is some stress in a marriage and not as bad as the military. Uh, divorce happens in fire service as well. Uh, but if you got a good wife, which thank the Lord, I got a great wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, you work through it and you get used to it. And I'm sure it's stressful for her every time I go to work. Well, what's going to happen to him this time? Um, <clears throat> yeah. You know, who's going who's gonna to punch him in the throat today? Well, exactly. Luckily, I've only been hit. That was only the second time that I can recall. I've been punched or slapped by uh, on an EMS call uh, that I can remember. But uh, you've got to have a good wife and a good supportive wife, especially mm-hmm. that first year. Um, cause you're either studying or at work or talking to people about how to pass a test or, mm-hmm. or something. You, you've got to have a great support system. If your family's not going to be supportive for you, it's going to be tough. I'm yeah. going to be honest with you. Yeah. Look, I've been asked this question many times and, and, uh, Mark, you can speak to this with some experience. People ask, okay, I don't get how you do this being away from home and keeping your family together. Um, and as a firefighter in, in the fire services, you're going to spend some time, uh, some birthdays, you're going to be at the station instead of with the children, or you're going to be, uh, there may be an anniversary and you really wanted to do something special, but unfortunately you can't because that, um, because you're on call. So how did you keep your family together when you were away? Not for, uh, extended periods of times, but on those special occasions? Well, I tell everybody, I've got so much seniority in the fire department, I can get any day I want off, as long as somebody else senior me doesn't grab it first. Uh, um, That's a nice so place to first, be, but it wasn't always like that. No, no. I, and when you, when you first, like my first probably five years, I had to work Christmas. And one year I worked Christmas, Thanksgiving, and New Year's Eve. Wow all in the same year because I didn't have enough seniority to get any of those days off. Just the last two years, I think I might be senior enough to get Christmas off. So uh, if, if I had to work it on my ship, but we knew because when we here in Tacoma, when we apply for vacation days, we apply normally November the year before. Mm-hmm. So we plan our, our whole year before uh, it even starts. So I know, hey, I've got to work 4th of July, I've got to work Christmas or whatever. If I can't get the days off, we know it. So pretty important to sit down in October and say, these are what's coming up this coming year. This is what I need to put in for. For instance, this year, 
Oh, I got all the days off I wanted. Yeehaw. Well, Mother's Day comes around. Guess which day I forgot to put in for? Oh, yeah. Yeah, great. My mother-in-law was coming, too. So wonderful. Good job, Mark. Yay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, the date, they only allow so many people off, and, and it's closed. You can't get it anymore because that closed those days, close up fast. So if you're not aware, <laughs> but to answer your question, which I guess I went off on another tangent, um, you have to plan. Yeah. We're going to celebrate Christmas a day early. Yeah. I want to stress that. Yeah, I want to stress that with all the listeners. Listen, of course, people are going to shoot their hand off on the Fourth of July, and you need the fire department, the EMS services to be there for you when you call nine one one. But I want you to remember, on Christmas, when your tree catches on fire, there are people that are not with their families, so that they can come to your house and respond when you call nine one one. We really do have the first responders. Um, that everybody else in the world envies because of the dedication of guys and gals like Mark who are there for you when you make the phone call, no matter what day of the year, no matter what time of day it is. So go back for just a second, Mark. That Those important days, you, you, you missed some of them with your family. How did you keep your relationship strong with your children? How did you keep – because – I'm thinking about that salesman who's on the road a lot. I'm thinking about that guy or the gal that's in the military that's gone for stretches of time. And they're saying, I I feel like by doing my job, I'm losing my family. By hanging on to my family, I may uh, lose my job. So tell tell them, how do you you handle that tension? Well, it's about priorities, for one. Where where does your family come in your life priority? Unfortunately for me, I've been through divorce, mm-hmm. uh, not because of my schedule, I, but because of other issues. Yeah. Uh, but that happens. Um, but you do have to give a priority. When you're home, you got to be home. Somebody told me one time, hey, when you're at work, you're at work. But when you're at home, you're at home. And I learned, okay, when I first started, we didn't even have email that you could check. Yeah. Now you have, have, you know, if you don't check your email every once in a while, you have 600 messages. So I, I check my email once a day. Other than that, I, I don't do too much yeah. fire stuff when I'm at home. So I'm yeah. going to be with my family. If I don't show my family their priority, then they're going to realize, hey, dad doesn't care about yeah. me. I hope you're, if you're listening, you're hearing this great piece of advice. Somebody said the same thing to me a long time ago. When you're at work, be all the way at work. Give it everything that you got. But when you're at home, Jeff, be all the way at home and give your family everything that you got. And don't have your mind at work when your body's at home with your family. Um, and that's the reason why I still got a relationship with my family. So thanks for that advice, Mark. Let's get serious for a little bit. Um, you see some pretty intense stuff as a firefighter. Um, I'm going to go off script a little bit, but um, I want you to talk about the times that not uh, don't describe the scenarios necessarily, but I'm certain after spending the amount of time that you have in the fire services, you've seen, you've lost a a firefighter or two. Tell us about um, how do you respond to that loss? Uh, luckily for Tacoma, we haven't lost too many firefighters. The last firefighter that died on the job was about 
six or seven years ago and he had a heart attack, which by the way, heart attacks is number one killer of firefighters right now. Mm. Uh, but he had a heart attack while on a scene. Uh, I was not working that day, but uh, that hits you pretty hard. Wow. One of our, one of our people just, just went down. They worked him as much as they could. Yeah. They, they, so the problem was they were on an EMS call with, I believe it was another cardiac patient. And then this firefighter had a cardiac patient. So they have two cardiac patients at the scene. You can't just stop working on the other yeah. person and say, Hey, we've got a firefighter hurt and we're going to go take care of the firefighter. You got to take care of both. And unfortunately this individual passed away. It was horrible. Uh, and at that time we really didn't have a system in place uh, that, <clears throat> okay, here's the steps we want to take yeah. as a department to deal with this type of situation. Um, those steps are being developed throughout the years and they're trying to get better. We had a, a, a peer support team at the time, luckily, and a, a chaplaincy agency uh -huh. that we work with. <clears throat> So they were there for the firefighters. Our union did a great job of having the union hall open up. People were able to come in, uh, have camaraderie with everybody, talk about what's going on, how to deal with it, which is a good thing because you can talk about, hey, how do we deal with this stress? You're not mm -hmm. by yourself. Who needs people are stepping up? Who needs shift work? The people on scene, do they need time off? I'll work for them so they don't have to take vacation days. Uh, so it was a good team environment, even though it was a horrible, horrible event. Uh, people were stepping up to be there for each other in their time of need. Yeah. So luckily, like, I'm sorry. Luckily, like I said, it has, it doesn't happen very often. Have you, uh, while you've been part of the fire services, lost somebody in a fire? Uh, no firefighters we've lost. No fire. yeah. Had civilians uh -huh. that passed away, but no firefighters since I've been on. Thank God. Yes, thank the Lord. That's right. Yeah. So now as a lieutenant, you supervise firefighters. And tell me what happens when you're a supervisor and you lose somebody to the stress of the job, if it's a, a cardiac arrest or something like that. How do you handle that as a leader? Well, part of your job as a leader is taking care of those you're leading, mm -hmm. no matter what career you're in. It's just as a firefighter, you got to think about other things. Like, is somebody going to get up off the ground and for no reason start swinging at you? Uh, <clears throat> or if somebody falls through a floor, for instance, how, how do we respond to that? Uh, so when, when you're a first firefighter and you go to a fire, your first thought is, yes, here we go. <laughs> Woo! You're high-fiving everybody after the fire, and it's great. And people are standing out in their front yard, and their house just burned down. You're, you're excited. Well, you got to realize, hey, that's horrible for these people. Yeah. That's, that's just a horrible situation, but you're excited. As a lieutenant, you got to start thinking about, okay, what type of fire is it? What am I going to need to put this fire uh -huh. out? How, what size line do I need? Where's the fire at? Is it the whole house? Is it one room? Is it a house? Is it a building? What could possibly be burning? How do I keep people safe that I'm in charge of and those I'm working with? Because when you're in a building, you can't see anything. 
because uh, of smoke and fire. And it's not like the movies were yeah. like in my room, you could see everything, but in the fire, you can't see anything yeah. at all. It barely. So it's hard to even keep track of your own personnel, but you're working with three or four other companies. Sometimes it, you just got to think, okay, I'm, I got to think for everybody, not just for myself. Uh, this is my responsibility to keep everybody safe. Yeah, that's a lot of responsibility as a leader to know that the decisions that you make may impact the lives of the guys and gals that work for you. Um, a lot of stress on you as a leader. Um, Mark, so take us to uh, the moments right before. So you just described a second ago, you're relatively new to the fire services. You've been working really hard. You've been training hard. Now you get called out on a fire and there's this natural adrenaline and maybe even a little bit of anticipation. I've heard about this for so long. Now I'm getting ready to do what I've heard about. But take us to the moments right before a firefighter goes into a burning building. What's going on in their mind? So if you're first into a fire, uh, a house fire, let's say, you're standing at the front door. It's you and an officer usually. Uh, the firefighter in our department is the one at the nozzle. Normally mm -hmm. an officer standing behind him. First thing that happens, the firefighter or the officer should do a 360 of the building if they can. Mm -hmm. Run around, what's going on, where's the fire, what are the things, is there a basement, uh, is the fire venting, is there smoke, what color is the smoke, is it puffy, where's it coming from, is it free-flowing. While that's happening, the, the firefighter calls for water, stretches the line in the front door, calls for water. And their job is to make sure they got their air pack on, make sure they're ready to uh, go into the fire. They got all their equipment on. We now are hoods. I've been doing it for, you know, decades, but some departments still, I guess, uh -huh. don't. Uh, and so is your hood up? Is it covering all your skin? Uh, and then they're supposed to open up the nozzle, test, test to make sure you got pressure, make sure you got volume, and make sure you got a good pattern. <clears throat> And then you test the door, see if the door is hot or cold. You can do that by using a little bit of bare skin, pull your glove back, and checking the doorknob because that's metal. So if the door is hot, that metal will be hot next to your skin. If the door, you don't crack it open, if there's a lot of pressure against the door, you want to be careful because that means that fire is pressurized. When you introduce new oxygen, it might explode. Yeah. So there's other options you can go to. So you're thinking to yourself, is this a pressurized structure? Is it free-flowing? Where's the fire coming from? There's also the adrenaline. All right, let's yeah. go. Let's get on. Uh, so you got to calm yourself because you have to do your job. We want to do a fire one time. I was myself and the nozzle, nozzleman. I went to the people in the front yard. They said, yep, everybody's out of the fire. We go in. We start uh, putting water on, on the different flames, and the whole bottom of the house is on fire. Next thing we heard was, help, help, help. And the nozzleman froze. And I said, hey, I'm getting on the radio. I'm going to call. There's somebody inside. I don't know where they're at. We can't get to them. Our job is to put the fire yeah. out. Because if we put the fire out, everything else gets better. Mm -hmm. We'll let somebody else get the other person out because we can't just drop the nozzle. So right. you got to remember that you're assigned a position or a, a task. you got to do that task because other people are counting on you to finish that task so they can do their task, whether it's uh, cutting a hole in the roof to vent the building. That's very important for the people inside. 
or if you're inside putting water on a fire. Yeah. Yeah. Just the, uh, all of the things that you have to consider to keep yourself, your team and whoever may be um, struggling to survive in that building is intense enough. But let's just be honest, Mark. I mean, you, it's human nature to run out of a burning building. And what fire, what the fire services do is strap their gear on and run into a burning building. And so I kind of wonder what's going on in their mind personally before they go into what they know is a really bad scenario. Well, if you were scared of fire, you wouldn't be a firefighter, to be honest with you. Uh, it's, but we've got equipment on to protect us. Um, I have been burned in a fire. Got steam burned through my gloves, blistered all my knuckles up. Wow. I was, uh, don't know what happened. I didn't put enough. I was on probation. I was a new firefighter on my very, my very first fire on the nozzle. And, uh, of course, the lieutenant behind me, she said, I didn't feel a thing. That's because all the heat, I just absorbed it all. <laughs> so that's another good You're thing about welcome. being a lieutenant. Yeah, another good thing about being a lieutenant is you can stand behind the people absorbing all the heat. Yeah. Uh, but – uh, you're ready for that because you train for it. You have the equipment and we're trained not to get in areas that are going to be so bad that we can't handle it. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen at times because things can change very quickly uh, in a volatile fire. Thankfully it hasn't happened to me yet and hopefully it never does. Uh, but you got to be prepared for it when it does. And and now the fire service is getting more in line to practice mayday calls. We never used to practice that before. Now it's become the standardized. How do we rescue somebody that, that needs a mayday? So describe a mayday call for somebody who doesn't recognize that term. Uh, so it's become standardized throughout the fire service that if somebody is having an emergency, uh, you're lost, disoriented, you're separated from your crew, you're running short on air. You're hurt. Uh, there's been a catastrophic building failure, something of that sort. What do you do? Well, it, you know, it was been decided you call a mayday. And now, at least in our department and other departments across the country, the smart thing to do is say, hey, mayday, mayday, mayday. Mm-hmm. Hey, whoa, okay, we got a mayday issue here. What's going on? And so uh, – our mentality is I'm not going to call a mayday. I'm not going to be that person. Forget that. I'll get myself out of this situation. Well, by the time you do call a mayday, if you have that mentality, it's too late. Uh, so you have to learn to call. It's, it's a retraining of ourselves. You have to learn to call early. And and if it happens, it happens. Don't, don't, be, don't wait because you run out of air in a fire. Huh. That's it. Yeah. You, the second you breathe that, that gas in, it's just, you're yeah. a goner. Yeah. Uh, so you got to call early. We had a guy one time in Mayday was calling out and they go, Oh, great. What happened? Somebody's hurt. I got to go help that person. Well, he fell through the floor and somebody called a Mayday for him. He didn't recognize he needed yeah. a Mayday. His thought was, I got to get my foot out of this floor that I just fell through yeah. so I can go help whoever called this Mayday. Uh, so it, it, you got to have a right attitude to take care of yourself. Yeah. But remember, if, if you're separated from your team, maybe they're hurt. Yeah. Uh, so you have to call a mayday for them. 
if it turns out to be bogus, well, you get ripped a little bit later. So what? Everybody's safe. Right. That's the key. Yeah. Yeah. To summarize what you just heard Mark say, you got guys and gals that are running inside a building. This is totally contrary to human nature. Everything about our nature says, get out of the building. I'm going to die. But you have guys and gals that are running inside a building. And, and he just said the reason why they can do that is because they trust their training and they trust the team that's around them. And then they trust their equipment. And at the end of the day, they put all of that stuff to the test by going inside a burning building that you don't know what you're getting into because of the fire until you're in the middle of it. Um, Mark, I can't tell you how much it, how much I respect you for who you are and for what you do, not just what you did in the army, but what you're doing to serve the community in, in Tacoma, Washington. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But not just you. I, I, I hope the listeners will go away remembering what you just heard. He said that their stations get three to 4,000 calls a year. And the fact is, if you pick up a phone and dial those three magic numbers, 911, you're going to have some of the most talented and dedicated people on the planet that will drop everything and put themselves at risk like Mark has for many years for you. And so, Mark, today, this broadcast is just one way of me trying to honor the first responders all over America. Thanks, man, for who you are. Thanks for what you do for the community. And thanks for what you've done for our country. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks for what you do as well. I very respect you very much. So, Well, thanks. It's mutual. You've always always been a good friend. So thank you very much. All right. Well, hey, everybody, I want to thank you for joining us for this episode. Um, thanks for listening at home. If if you're new to Unbeatable, you don't forget, you can find this podcast on social media everywhere. Just search at Unbeatable Podcast on social media, or you can join the Unbeatable Army by going to unbeatable.com. Thanks so much for being with us today. Don't forget what you heard from Mark. When life gets hard, when you get knocked down by circumstances, keep in mind that you're not going through this all on your own, that you got a team of people around you that will help you get up, dust yourself off, and be unbeatable. See you next time. God bless.